Season 4, episode 47 of Brackets, Bubbles, and Bit Stealers. I did not forget the music this time, Jonathan. That's good, because uh, I don't have to use it in the outro. Yeah, Sam Betterman, Jonathan Litskin here, and Kevin Sweeney is joining us today. We got a big show planned, because, I mean, we're only a couple weeks away from Selection Sunday. So, I mean, it's really heating up now. Yeah, a lot of key bubble games this weekend really locking in. There's some stuff that, like, doesn't really, like, mean that much anymore. Like, that we probably will skip over just because at this point in the season, you're focused on who's getting in the tournament, who's going to be playing where, and where teams are going to be seated. Yeah, uh, one team that we know is definitely getting in and we know is definitely going to get probably a protected seed, Alabama. They had a huge win against Florida this week at home in overtime, one of the most entertaining games of the season. They play Kentucky on Saturday in another game that's going to be highly entertaining if you like uh, the ball going in the basket. And Kevin, you just dropped an article about Alabama like five minutes ago. I haven't even had the chance to read it. <laughs> so um, what have you what have you noticed about Alabama's offense this year that just makes them so potent? Yeah, look, I think they're incredibly unique. Um yeah, I think it's I think the thing that has always stood out to me about Nate Oates is kind of being unafraid to be different and embracing being I think I think he's just been so willing to take a job, be an outsider and not walk into that and say, I'm comfortable coming in sixth and I'm gonna do things the way everyone has done it and I'm gonna be this thing. And it's a that that's really the hook of the story, right? Is that like like he, he walked into Alabama with this kind of audacious style of play and it it worked and then they went even more extreme this year and part of that was you know beyond their control right like they obviously had so much turnover in the offseason lost Betty Ako late you know things like that but I uh, lost Quinterly late who uh, Nate says would have been their starting point guard but like I I, I think that the thing I think so highly of him for is is just he's you know he's just done a phenomenal job of, of being bought into who he is and if that means playing three, six, three guards and spacing the floor and open it up and creating easy reads and mismatches. And like, like that's what you want, that's what they're going to do. Right. Like it doesn't matter that it's not traditional. It doesn't matter that it doesn't look like what everyone else does in, in college basketball. And they've just built such a dynamic offense. Um, it's kind of cool. It's, it's really cool to see fun team to watch. Obviously that Florida game was phenomenal um, and leading into Kentucky, another game that should be uh surely pretty, pretty high scoring. Uh, I think given the, uh, the way both of those teams score and also the way that both of those teams defend. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But, look, I, I just think it's – I think it's cool to watch a team that, you know, isn't necessarily built on NBA talent, isn't necessarily built on, um, you know, in, in a traditional way, go out. I mean, look, it's one thing when you have Brandon Miller and you're, you know, number one seat. But for this team to be pushing for, you know, two or three, maybe win the SEC for a third time in four years. I mean, look, like – the, the context here, Alabama's made two – before Nate Oates, Alabama made two of the previous 13 NCAA tournaments. They might win three SEC championships in four years. Like, like it is unreal what he has accomplished, and uh, I think it was it was fun to shine a light on that a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, Oates has done a phenomenal job at Alabama, same way he did a phenomenal job um, at Buffalo. And the thing, that, the thing about this team is, like, last year's team was obviously, I think, significantly better than this one. They were a two-way team. They defended the interior really well. And even though their three-point percentage wasn't very good, they could still hit those shots. This year's team, 
they, they just like they scored 100 points. What is it? Eight, nine times this year. That, do, that doesn't happen. And they've gotten better defensively over the course of the year. And as that's happened, I've slowly and slowly bought into them a lot more because I, I think that this is a team that you don't want to face on a one day scout because they're, they, as you said, this is a super unique team. I think the one thing too, and again, we'll, we'll see if this plays out as true. Um, but they believe that they're maybe more geared to win in March than they have been because they think they're going to be, they, they just think they're more consistent offensively, right? Because in some ways, because they play in such a drastic style, like they're always going to be able to score, right? Like, Yes. Could they go three for 27 again from three, just like they did against San Diego State? Yes. Like, that's obviously possible. But I think they feel as though, even if they shoot poorly, because they are so adept at getting to the rim, that they're going to have a chance to be in games. Yes, it's going to require scoring people because this team is not great defensively. And they've had to sacrifice a little bit of that playing Nelson at the five. But I, I think there is a level of like, all right, like, we don't care how we have to play. Like, we're going to play how we have to play. We're not going to change who we are. And I think the Florida game is a good good blueprint, right? Like, obviously, Florida's a very good team. Alabama shot eight for 32 from three. Did not play particularly well. But found a way to win because they got off. They got 21 offensive rebounds. They got to the rim. Estrada was phenomenal. Uh, Nelson had a big game against a team that has a ton of size, obviously, and hand-locked in, and Samuel, and Condon, Thomas Howe. So, like, I, I think I think things like that are encouraging signs that maybe Alabama, even if they're not as – you know, not as traditionally good as last year's Alabama team. Maybe they're a little bit more well set up for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and they're just a nightmare consistently against mid-majors because of the style they play. Like, those teams can't keep up with that. So you get into the first round, and they pretty much got no chance of losing to whoever, whatever mid-major they draw, whether that's Charleston, Akron, whoever it might end up being. And then in the second round, like – Preparing for that style, that that unique style on one day is a borderline impossible task. And yeah, like it doesn't mean that they won't lose in the second round. It just means it's very difficult. Like the last couple years in the tournament, they've gotten to the Sweet 16 twice. Their second round games have not been close either time. Ironically, they've both been against Maryland. But yeah, yeah, I just think tomorrow is going to be a super fun game. It's obviously a really good opportunity for a Kentucky team that has been heavily criticized all all year, despite the talent. And, you know, it's a good opportunity for, for Bama too, because after this, like you got Tennessee at home, you have Florida on the road. Their schedule's not easy the rest of the way, but tomorrow could go a long way for them winning the SEC or at least getting a share of it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we, we've drilled the Kentucky points to death um, over, over the course of the season. Yeah. Not just on this podcast, but everywhere. They, they're they constantly the most talked about team or one of the most talked about teams because they are Kentucky. But they are just still endlessly fascinating as a basketball team this year, more so than they have been in past years. And, and I mean, the SEC is just full of some super fascinating teams that play to certain different extremes. Like, obviously, Texas A&M has their extremes where they don't make shots, but they rebound everything. And Alabama, Florida, Kentucky, they all play to extremes. Auburn, just like they don't – their numbers wouldn't – I'm not sure if they suggest, like, as extreme, but you watch them and you think they're extreme just, like, watching what Auburn does. So I feel like this year in the SEC is the year of extremes. 
I think just with Kentucky specifically, Sam, I don't know if you saw Kevin out and if you saw this either. Someone tweeted an article or a tweet, something, something like that. Like yesterday that like, there's basically this like ongoing civil war between like Kentucky fans. Like you're, you're either pro or anti-Cal and there's no like middle ground on, on this. So someone tweeted it and I thought it was kind of fascinating. I, I guess the way I would, I would frame the Kentucky thing with, with this year, I, I, I just think this year is such an interesting like hallmark for like, what do you accept as Kentucky basketball? Right. Because on one hand, I think you'd look up and say, all right, like, Kentucky undertook something that's relatively challenging to do in 2024, which is play younger, you know, be, be freshman heavy, um, and dealt with roster uncertainty offseason, dealt with all the criticism about how they play offensively. They fixed all of that, right? They play a lot more, you know, they play faster, they play more modern, right? Like, I think if you if you just put on the tape of any Kentucky game, you took the score bug off the off, off the off the graphic, and you just said like, watch 40 minutes of Kentucky on October 30th, you would have been like, wow, like I couldn't, I can't believe what Cal's accomplished. This is unbelievable. And then you look up, it's like, all right, like they've done all this and they're six and six in the last 12 games. And they've lost three home games in, you know, of late. And they've lost to LSU's, you know, an NIT team, right? Like the, so, so, so I, I think this becomes just such like an interesting battleground of like, all right, like on one hand, if you're a Kentucky, if you're a Cal believer, you can sit there and say, all right, like, look, like we built a team that's clearly dangerous, a team that can win games in the NCAA tournament without question. I think everyone believes this, this Kentucky team at its best can win multiple games in March, potentially make a final four, potentially win a national championship. But if you're a Cal hater, like you're going to sit up there and be like, all right, well, we did all this and we're going to come in like fourth or fifth in the SEC where you get a five, six, maybe even a seven seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, we're probably not going to get past the Sweet 16 based on like seed line, right? Like, why is that acceptable at Kentucky, right? Like, if this is a quote unquote good year or a bounce back year, like, like, how are we getting back to winning national championship, going to Final Fours? Not maybe 38 and one, but like, how are we getting closer to 38 and one and further from this being a good season? And I think it just makes for an interesting final month, right? Because I think if Kentucky, you know, if Kentucky swoons down the stretch and winds up, you know, 11 and seven, 10 and eight in the SEC and goes, you know, gets a six seed and loses in the second round, like, what did this team really do? What did they accomplish? And what's the what's the what's the direction moving forward? Again, I don't I don't think that means the Cal's getting fired, but like again, I think you just you just, you just start to think big picture when a season like this winds up being relatively underwhelming compared to the talent. And say like, how are we getting to where Kentucky believes it belongs? I actually think that like it probably will mean more on Twitter to Kentucky fans than it actually does big big picture because i know kevin you talked about this in the off season like i forget who it was but someone like asked if this was like calipari's best class ever and it's like have you watched these kids play at all like this is one of the worst classes in recent memory and the nba draft is going to show that so like i think big picture like yeah like you can point to like yeah this kentucky team does have talent relative to the rest of college basketball but at the same time, like, this freshman class, like, isn't that good? So it's like, is this freshman class really going to be the group that, like, you're like, oh, how did, like, how did this freshman class not work? 
So I guess the one thing I would say in response to that is that I think it's different. I I probably underrated this freshman class's ability to impact college basketball, right? And part of that was that there was a lot of time spent wondering, like, how good is Justin Edwards? And I was like, well, Justin Edwards is a is a big wing with a lot of potential who's not actually that good yet, right? Like he's he's he has all the tools physically to be a number one overall pick, but he doesn't have the game. And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, all right, like how, how are you building Kentucky into that with, with those type of players, right? Like, look, obviously, if Kentucky starts getting John Walls and Boogie Cousinses again, they're gonna look pretty darn good. Like it's hard to screw that up. But is Rob Dillingham good enough of a player? Is Reed Shepard good enough? Like are guys like that good enough where you sh- where, where we should expect more, right? Where we should expect them to compete for a championship, right? Maybe Rob Billingham isn't the best NBA prospect because he's a you know wild decision maker and he's skinny and he's not a true point guard, right? Like whatever we want to say, it's the reason why we don't like Rob Dillingham in the NBA. But we can't deny that Rob Dillingham's like an awesome college basketball player. And if you've got him as an awesome college basketball and ball player, and Reed Shepard is pretty awesome college basketball player. And Antonio Reeves, pretty darn good basketball college basketball player, and DJ is a great defender and can get downhill. And uh, you have Vieira who can really guard, and Trey Mitchell who can you know play inside and out, and you know Onyenso and Bradshaw as seven footers with you know ability to protect the rim. Like you list all that off, and again you look up and you see eighteen and eight, eight and five, six and six in your last twelve, and you're like, okay, is that it? Like like wh- where is the next step? And I don't I don't I don't know how you build it with better players. So if you can't build it with better players, like what's the what what's the common denominator here? It almost has to be coaching. I think that's the thing that gets really challenging here at Kentucky. Yeah, um, and moving on from Kentucky, because again, I, I started that segment with we've beaten the Kentucky point <laughs> to death all year. <laughs> and moving on to a team that um, is winless in the state of Virginia and 21 and 2 everywhere else. That obviously being the Dayton Flyers, who lost at George Mason. That's a good A-10 team. Tony Skin having a really solid first year. But it kind of, it at this point, it feels like that's the type of loss that could knock you a seed line. But really, everybody around them lost this around this week. So it really didn't knock them a ton, I don't think. But it's going to make people question this Dayton team. Look, on the Dayton front, I don't think they've looked like an elite team in a while, right? Like maybe I never really believed that, but I certainly haven't believed it in, you know, since late January. And I think a lot of that is that, you know, their guard play has somewhat regressed. Kobe Elvis in particular struggled. Like, look, once they lost Malachi Smith, I think the question was just like, do they have a guy who can consistently get in the paint? They have a guy who can create offense. You know, you know, I like Bennett as a game manager. I like Elvis as a shooter. I like, you know, Bray as a shooter. I like Enoch Cheeks as a, you know, a slasher, like, but what, what, again, what's the, like, who, who's, who's the Robin to Deron Holmes's Batman. And I, I just kind of feel like once Elvis stopped playing well, he's really struggled lately. They just don't feel that scary. Right. So you can load up on Holmes more. You can, you can lock the paint as best you can and just dare someone else to go beat you. And so when you watch offensive performances, like, the one they had at Mason, the one they had at VCU, obviously, a couple of weeks ago. Um, look, I mean, they were not pretty for most of the game against Duquesne at home, right? Like, you should be able to put away Duquesne at home. Boredom, too. Right. Like, it's – they just have not passed the eye test in a while. And doesn't mean they won't be – you know, again, 
I think they'll be a, a good seed in the tournament. Their resume is relatively beyond reproach. Um, when you're winning all your home games and you're beating SMU on the road and you're beating St. John's on a neutral and like they, they won at since you know basically at Cincinnati, like again, no criticism of the resume. I just think like when when a bracket opens up and you see those teams, I can't. If I'm the 11 seed that plays 16 Dayton, I'm not scared. From the 12 seed that draws Dayton, I'm not scared. I'd rather play them than a lot of the other teams you could see in that that range. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's. I'm not. I don't want to say a complacency factor, but it just kind of feels like they've been coasting for the last month of basketball. It just feels like they only have the energy when they absolutely need it, and even then, they don't make the shots half the time in that scenario. And they just haven't. They haven't shot quite as well as they did earlier in the season when they went on that big winning streak. I think the game that like made me say like, "Wow, this is like top 15 team." Was the was when they just had that ridiculous offensive performance against Rhode Island and like. Rhode Island's not good, but like that was a ridiculous offensive performance. It was like 24 assists to two turnovers. And they haven't looked close to that really at any point since, aside from the second half against St. Joe's, I would say. But overall, I, I just think this Dayton team, there's there's a lot of talent there. And I, I think Anthony Grant sometimes doesn't get enough credit from the Dayton fan base. But if this year keeps kind of going in the coasting direction then i'll start to kind of listen to that a little bit more and and i they really need to shape things up because they can they'll make the tournament regardless as you mentioned but it's just not looked the same as you said it kind of just i'm kind of just paraphrasing what you said at this point yeah and because of the way dayton's playing it probably makes the a10 tournament the most interesting conference tournament to watch i mean there's a bunch of teams in this league that could break that tournament just wide open. Like you talk, Loyola Chicago's been playing super well. Richmond's still 11 and 2 in the league, even though they haven't been playing as well. Kevin, I know you've talked a lot about UMass, too, who's just, you, you can't figure them out right now. On every show these days. They're, they're, if nothing else, UMass is the team. I'll say this I've talked to multiple A10 coaches. That is the team that scares everyone in the A10. Like you walk. Like you walk into in, into a post game session with a A10 coach, you call them after a beer or two after the game, and they're like, "Man, I don't know how we beat them." Like, like if you beat them, like you don't know how you beat them because they are so talented, they are so big. They have you know Curry's dynamic, Cross is phenomenal, obviously Cohen with the interior. Like, like they're the team that like makeup wise makes sense, but again, like, does anyone trust them to win three or four straight? That's really yeah, I mean, hard. The thing I've said about UMass this year is like this feels like proof of concept for frank martin it doesn't feel like the team that's going to get him there though it feels like a gigantic step in the right direction because the um the lasting image from last season is just him sitting there staring on the sideline when they were down like 40 to richmond in the first game of the a10 tournament and i was just thinking like at this point is anybody like they're, they're just not playing hard like they're not playing hard for him and this year they they're they're all fighters Outsiders this year. Um, I will say on just other A10 teams, like you mentioned Loyola. Like Loyola's been I, I think there's something to be said in this league, like just being able to find ways to win games. Like so it, it feels like every single A10 game, if you turn it on, it's like within five points at the U4, right? So it's like who's gonna close? And no one's closed better than Loyola. We'll see if that continues, but they have just done a phenomenal job, like you know, grinding out wins when they've needed to. 
um, making winning plays in, in late situations, different guys stepping up on different nights. It, it's funny. I mean, I was around, I was a college freshman uh, covering the, the first games I ever covered was Loyola 2018 final four run. Um, well, not final four before they were, you know, before they were anything, right. They, they're you know, playing Samford and buy games and I'm there. Right. And I, I just, Porter Mosier would always say like certain coaches, you know, they have their ticks, right. His, his tick was different guys on different nights. Like it did, didn't matter. Like, like they were going to be the team that had like eight guys averaging between six and 12 points per game. And like, that's what this team has, right. That's, that's Des Watson and Phil Alston and, Braden Norris and Sheldon Edwards all of a sudden out of the no, out of nowhere, right? Like you work with that, like they've just they just had different guys win them different games. Like Jaden Dawson won him a game at St. Joe's. Yeah. Uh, Sheldon Edwards won him the game at George Mason. Uh, Des Watson's been phenomenal. Dame Delican won him the game at Rhode Island over the weekend. So, look, that's the type of team that scares you in a conference tournament setting because they defend, they don't beat themselves, and you get them in a in a, in a fi- in the final four minutes of the game. Like they're not tensing up; they're making the play. Yeah, I mean, I, I was at that St. Joe's game, and I, I just came away so impressed with just how they fought back and kind of just hit shots when they needed to, and they had some really strong defensive possessions on St. Joe's really good guards towards the end of that game. And like on the kind of the other side of the spectrum with teams that really didn't weren't weren't closing well. I mean, Duquesne started 0 and five, and here they are at six and seven, because a lot of those first couple games were toss ups. I mean, St. Joe's, Richmond. Um, Loyola Loyola game, I think, was tied with four minutes to go. Yeah. Yeah. Those games were toss ups. And now sitting here, they've gone from 0 and 5 to 6 and 7, as we said. And they they play Fordham tonight on Friday, um, Friday 10. And it's the Fordham Whiteout. So, you know, I got to wear the Fordham Whiteout shirt I got last year. Um, And then they get LaSalle at home. So, like, Duquesne very well could be um, 8 and 7 going into a road trip against George Mason and VCU next Saturday and, and Tuesday. Yeah. Duquesne is interesting to me for a couple of different reasons. Like they have just a trio of guards that not a lot of a 10 teams ha- have a guard level of that good, but at the same time, like they've been hurt. They don't really have much, much depth. So like how many games can you expect them to realistically win when playing consecutive days? days in a row with the depth that they have. Yeah, and we moving from the A-10 to another conference that played some important games on Friday nights. The Ivy League has a huge weekend, and this, this has got to be the unofficial Ivy League podcast at this point. We talk basically every show about the Ivy League because it, it's just so good. I mean, I, I wrote a column earlier this week just on – how this top three is just so much better than what we've seen in the past from this league. Last couple, last couple of years, it was one or two really good teams. This year, it's three teams in Ken Palm's top 100, three teams in the net top 90, and two of them go at it tonight about an hour from where I am. I, God, I, should, I should have found a way to get there. Um, Yale and Cornell tonight. Cornell, obviously, super deep. They'll beat you with... 15 dudes playing and Yale might have the player of the year and Danny Wolf and defensive player of the year and Bez and bang. They have, Yale's. these are two really good basketball. Teams. I think Cornell's kind of getting underrated a little bit. Like I, I have been critical of them because I don't think their shot selection is very good, but at the same time, like that shot selection can lean into a very high f- ceiling and very low floor. 
like they played two one possession games with Dartmouth. Like one of them was a free three point game in which Cornell scored fifty six points. But they also could look like world beaters on any given given night. Like they nearly won at Yale. So I do think they are getting a little bit underrated. I wouldn't say they're the best team in the league, but I do think they are very much capable of beating those other teams to win the win the league. And I wouldn't be shocked if they did. Wolf was phenomenal uh, in the first meeting between these two teams. Uh, I think he had like 25 and 10. I actually was doing some kind of pre so – some some postseason prep and uh, watched that game back earlier this week and was like – like the Cornell had no answers. Obviously, the part is how they play. They don't have a ton of size. Their size is really more, you know, finesse guys who want to, you know, shoot the ball, space the floor, open things up offensively, uh, and they give it back defensively. And obviously, Danny's able to take advantage of that. Um, but I thought Cornell, like, like, they found ways to get easy buckets. They, you know, turned over Yale, which was impressive. Uh, Chris Manny was phenomenal. So it's going to be a fun game. Like, I – Obviously, I'm very important for the regular season title. Uh, feels very much like a toss-up. I think I guess the, I guess what everyone's playing for about being the one seed is to avoid having to play two games against the top three uh, come Ivy tournament time. So that makes this obviously very important. But uh, look, the, the separation to me between Yale, Princeton, and Cornell is not all that substantial. I think I would probably take Princeton if I had to choose one. But uh, you know, really, all three teams are, are phenomenal and a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, the, the thing about Cornell is that, like, they are so committed to their identity where it just, like, if things start to go wrong, they can really spiral. But if things are going right, they can, they can like, I mean, they were, they, were up 50, they were up 15 in that first half at Yale. And then Yale just completely controlled the second half of that game. They, and, but if you look at what Cornell did against Princeton, they went on, like, a 26-0 run in that first half, and they just – didn't let up they are so committed to shooting the three spacing the floor and opening up just these easy paths to the basket they're the number one two-point offense in the country because of how many threes they shoot and it's really it's really impressive when you watch them in there and they're playing well because they, they just they can make basketball look really fun um but they, they can also make basketball look like they can also look like they're not coached at times and I kind of feel that when they lose momentum, it's sometimes hard for them to get it back. Now, the other thing about the Ivy League is the top three teams, they've um, in the first round robin between the two, between the three, the home team won each game. Then Princeton beat Yale at Princeton. So now we still have uh, Cornell playing Yale tonight at Cornell and Cornell playing Princeton on March 2nd, next Saturday at Princeton. So if the whole if the home teams hold serve, they'll all be tied at twelve and two, and it's just really impressive that none of those teams have really dropped any of the other games. I, I was going to say, how does how does the tiebreaker work there? Then usually, like usually, it's like a like record against next next team. But if everybody's undefeated, yeah, that'd be that'd be kind of a unique situation, wouldn't it? Um, they, they might have to do a coin flip. Yeah, get into a coin flip situation. What? But who gets the first flip? Who 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 gets the buy in the coin flip? I mean. What, I think it's like rating. I don't know. I think I I think they should. It should be like a. They should like play a blackjack hand or something. Like do something ridiculous. Who, who gets the buy in the coin flip is a crazy sentence. <laughs> something <laughs> has like I, I'm I'm genuinely I, I actually the Mac, had, the Mac had, had a bunch of coin flips. I know that. Yeah. Uh, so 
we'll have to we'll have to ask the Mac coin flip experts who, who were there at the time of how that worked. <laughs> but yeah, the Ivy League is so fun. Just two nights in a row um, these next two weeks of really phenomenal basketball. Princeton has to go to Harvard tonight. I mean that that's that's no gimme. Harvard has maybe the, I mean, there's an argument from being the best guard in the conference in Malik Mack and. Yeah, that's that's such a fun point guard matchup between Malik Mack and Xavier Lee. Mack was coming back from mono the first time those two played and didn't really do all that much. Justice Ajibor missed that game, and Ajibor was just so good against Columbia last week. So I mean, this is a more dangerous Harvard team than the Harvard team that Princeton saw at Jadwin and beat by 30 back in early January. Yeah, Ajibor changed everything because of you know rim protection, especially for Princeton. Princeton's in ISO team, like they're in a clear out, they're going to win those one-on-one matchups most of the time. But if there's somebody kind of parked in, in the paint and, and can deter and change things, only benefit, I guess, for Princeton is, you know, they're going to play five out, right? So especially if Martini's on the floor, like they're going to be able to space with their five and, and hope he makes those shots. Uh, he made them against Harvard the first time. See if he does the second time. Yeah, I mean, just such a fun weekend in, in the Ivy League coming up and one other thing that I kind of want to get into for tonight before we get into tomorrow, the team we haven't really talked about all that much, and honestly, I, I don't really know too much about aside from like the roster and the stats. Akron is eleven and two. They just lost to Toledo on the road, but they they do play tonight. They they host Kent State, and they have a chance to bounce back. Kevin, do you have any thoughts on on Akron? Yeah, look, I think they're that's a that's a that's a rivalry that's always been really contested and heated so i think that'll be a very exciting game kent trying to turn the corner a little bit um look i mean freeman is phenomenal like like one of the best bigs in the country dominates the boards could score at every level block shots like mobility wise unbelievable story like like you combine him and ali ali together i mean that's a front court that's gonna scare some people i think the thing for me has always been with them like do they have the guard play do they have, you know, especially if you're looking at, like, is this the team that can win a game in the NCAA tournament? Like, do they have the dude in the backcourt that can win you a game? And I don't know that they do, and I think that will be challenging. Not sure it will be a challenge against Kent State, although, again, rivalry game, things can happen. But, look, I, I think the they're a very consistent, very good team, uh, and I'm excited about that, that conference race kind of coming down to the wire uh, between them and Toledo, obviously. Now, Todd Kowalczyk finally you know, looking for that breakthrough to, to finally get to the NCAA tournament, but you know, maybe no coach, I guess John Becker excluded, has been better in the uh, in the regular season over an extended period of time than he has. Uh, just you know, phenomenal. And um, they they've started to turn the corner. I thought they were really good uh, earlier this week when they played Akron. They were really impressive against Ohio last week. I was watching that game. It was a Friday night game, so uh, a lot of fun to watch Toledo. So that Toledo Akron race we should be should be should be entertaining. Yeah, Toledo's always really fun. They um, they also play tonight. They play Bowling Green on the road. Um, I'll, I probably won't have many eyes on that, but Bowling Green, I, I did see a stat when when you tweeted out the like Ken Palm risers. Bowling, I'm pretty sure Bowling Green was on that list. And probably. when I looked at Ken Palm fallers, um, Southern Utah was on that list. So I was just thinking, man, Todd's time to be really coach. Now they've dropped like 30 spots since then, but. Um, yeah, that doesn't change the fact that Todd Simon can, can coach. He's a good basketball coach. Really so, good. Yeah. And part of it's turnover. I mean, again, I, I, part of this just, you know, 
he left Southern Utah at a time where they were going to have to turn over the roster and double that with Southern Utah was, you know, like he brought a couple guys from Southern Utah, like the big kid Spurgeon, I think is a, is a, is a, is a follower. So yeah, that obviously impacts things, but um, yeah, I, I always thought Todd did a great job. And so um, good, good for him to be winning early or at least competing early at Bowling Green. Yeah. Perhaps. I was just going to say that, five conference wins last year and they're already at seven with like five games to go. Obviously they lost a couple toss ups lately, but it's been a good season for them overall. Yeah. And moving on to Saturday's slate, perhaps the most important game from a bubble perspective, as this is brackets, bubbles and bid stealers. If we didn't talk about the bubble, what would we be doing? Um, is Butler and Seton hall, two teams that are around the last four in, first four out, next four that are on everyone's bubble and these are two teams that i mean they're both really well coached Admata and shaheen holloway are they're, they're both wizards they're both geniuses um and it's an 8 30 p.m game in newark it should be really fun i mean it's it's critical for butler right? i mean they have the wins already they just have the, the the good wins they just have to get the quantity of wins up and find a way to get to 18, 19 wins in the regular season. Um, and that requires winning some 50-50 games, right? Like, you know, Marquette was a game they could have won at home. They didn't. All right, whatever. You got them on the road. Creighton, again, it's a game at home you can win. And they played really poorly in the second half. But, again, you got them on the road. Then go to Villanova, and they're kind of around, hanging, 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 can't quite get over the finish line. So, you know, it's not to say that they've you know, fallen off a cliff here lately. They just – stopped winning the close games that they were winning in, you know, late January, early February. And so you got to find a way to get it back. Um, you know, the schedule as constructed gives them some opportunities. I think all four of these games certainly are winnable, um, but it's hard to beat Seton Hall. I mean, it's really, really hard to play them the way that they, the way they play stylistically, the toughness, um, you know, obviously Kadari has been phenomenal. Um, just gives them such a different element uh, offensively and, and kind of the never say die from Shaheen obviously really helps. So be a fun game. Um, I think Butler in a weird way probably needs a little more than Seton Hall does, but uh, Seton Hall also in, in not secure footing just yet. So uh, certainly very, very, very big for both teams. Yeah. I mean, I think Seton Hall definitely has um, a better shot at a, um, at the NCAA tournament. They're, they're in, in most brackets while Butler is out in most brackets, but and that's kind of the thing here. Butler is on a little bit of a skid here. They need to they need to kind of get things right and just get one in the win column. While Seton Hall, I mean, they're ten and five in the Big East. They could they could legit finish third in the conference if things if things bounce their way, and that would get them. I mean, that that would get them a chance to play a six seed instead of a five seed in, in the Big East tournament, and that's probably the difference between playing a really playing team like Providence and playing a team like Villanova, which honestly, there isn't much of a difference there. They're both really good. <laughs> they they both can be really good. Um, but I, I think Providence is probably a little bit more dangerous in that sense. Um, just because I, I think they're better coached. Um, <laughs> Look, I just think it's hard to know with all these because like, you don't know where motivations will be, right? Like if, if Providence beats UConn before the base tournament, like are they coasting and, you know, look, I mean, for honestly, for Providence, if they somehow do beat UConn, like, 
I, I would consider sitting Devin Carter in the Big East tournament. Like, 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 I'm not getting hurt. I'm not ending my season because of this, right? Like, we're in. Um, if Villanova is desperate or if Villanova rolls over down the stretch and quits, right? Like, again, it's just hard to know. I, I, I try not to worry too much about that. Yeah. So, honestly, there's a lot of teams still in play for the six. So, I, I just think the six seed is probably going to be – um, you, 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 I think you'd rather have the three seed than the four seed because you don't get a fresh team with the six seed versus the five seed. Obviously, the six seed is going to beat DePaul by 70, but they're still going to have to go out there and play at least 20 minutes of basketball um, the night before, which the five seed will not have to do. Well, I mean, in fairness, it, it's against DePaul. So. I mean, that's why I said at least 20 minutes of basketball, not 40. 20 still feels like I was going to say 10. It took Marquette like five, so. I'm, Kolek had what, like 12 assists in the first 10 minutes? Like 13 assists in the first half. Yeah, I mean, um, DePaul does play Georgetown tomorrow. That's um, obviously the biggest game of the year. I tweeted the other I tweeted the other night that if, uh, like, if you ever want a case study on what would happen if you put a low major team in a high major conference? Like 2023, 24 DePaul will be your answer. It's just, it's just brutal. Like, it's, I, was, it's, I was, in, I, I was invited uh, to, to go to Georgetown DePaul this weekend. So when someone actually made like a serious, like, dude, you got to come to this game. It's terrible. It's going to be great. I was like, look, I, I've already seen the lowest it can go. I, I saw DePaul Louisville. Like there's not, there's nothing that can, not, there's nothing that can exceed the comedy that that game provided. So I, I won't be there, unfortunately. Like, the thing about, like, watching DePaul is, like, there's teams, like, LeMoyne is actually lower in Ken Palm than DePaul. But, like, I'm really juiced up for LeMoyne FDU tomorrow because that game means something. Like, if DePaul were in the NEC and DePaul isn't, DePaul wouldn't even be the highest ranked, the highest Ken Palm Chicago team in the NEC, <laughs> assuming you're counting Chicago State, which is something. Like, if DePaul were in the NEC, these games, they wouldn't be dead. It would mean something, um, but it's just yeah, a low major team in a high major conference, and I mean, that's what you're gonna get. Um, Dude, DePaul lost the game by 34 on Wednesday and dropped like two spots in Ken Palm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, every DePaul, every DePaul game is like you have to scroll to the bottom of the Ken Palm fan match page to find it. I've I've discussed with a friend how many games would it take, like how how long of a Big East season would it would it take for DePaul to get to three sixty two, like how, how how much more would we have to keep playing for them as they keep like slowly 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 dropping, like how how, how many more they could get to three sixty one, they they could get to three sixty one. I don't think they could get to three sixty two. The Delta Devils are holding strong. You think <laughs> they are eight points worse than three sixty one. Okay, so yeah, we, we it would take us a while. That's, that's fair. And they put their games behind a paywall, so I can't even listen to Caleb and Andre anymore. Honestly, might have done the world a favor, but also didn't because now we can't listen to Caleb and Andre. It's basically the same thing as Georgetown not letting three men weave into their basketball games. It's kind of the same idea. <laughs> Ken Palm yeah. currently has Mississippi Valley State as a 12-point neutral dog to a one-win Detroit Mercy team. <laughs> <laughs> Detroit Mercy was like favored by six in that game that they won too. Yeah, that uh, should speak to how bad IUPUI is. No, yeah, no, no. I, wa- I watched that full game. I-, I watched that full game because I am a total sicko. That's how I spent my Valentine's Day. Um, but um, yeah, 
moving on to less sicko behavior than DePaul Georgetown and IUPUI Detroit Mercy. Um, two big games in the ACC tomorrow. Um, Duke on the road at Wake Forest, UNC on the road at Virginia. I mean, Wake Forest, this is the win that could, if Wake Forest is able to pull this one out, that would give them um, probably a little bit more safety to the NCAA tournament because the, the metrics are there um, right now. They don't really have the quality wins that this would be a quality win that could that you could point to and say, look, we're, um, we're a tournament team. We beat Duke. We beat Florida. We have all these metrics. 100%. Like, it's their Super Bowl. Full stop. Right. Like, I'm not ruling out that they get in the tournament without winning this game. But it ain't going to be comfortable. Right. Like, there's no there's no world where Wake Forest is not the bubbliest of bubbly teams if they don't beat Duke on Saturday. Right. And, like, at some point, like, I like this Wake team. I think they're a lot of fun to watch. I like Steve Forbes. At some point, they actually have to win one of these, right? Like, it's great that when they play really well, they're unstoppable. It's great that they can beat Pitt by 33, that they can beat Virginia at home by 19, that they can, right? Like, all that's fantastic. That being said, like, if you're a tournament team, and this is the case in every other conference, you win an up game or two, right? Like, you win a game that's hard. Like, you can't you can't lose all your 50-50s and just claim that you're a tournament team because you won by 30 every time you, you were supposed to win. To me, like, I just want to see it, right? So everything's in front of you. Duke's, you know, back end of a road trip. Wake, everything to play for. Like, let's do it. Like, like go win the game. And I thought they could have beaten Duke when they played, what was it, last week, two weeks ago? Um, just didn't that make enough shots. Disaster. Yeah. I mean, Monsanto couldn't shoot. Boopy was awful. I, to be honest, I, I think Boopy, Boopy Miller is the key in this game. I think he's the key for Wake in every big game because he has struggled so badly against good teams. Like it, it, it puts so much pressure on Salas when him and Hildreth play as poorly as they have consistently in the biggest spots. So they got to keep Efton Reed out of foul trouble, and they need Boopy Miller to play above average basketball. They do that, they're going to win the game. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, I was just going to say that Wake does have two quad one opportunities left in all likelihood after after the Duke game. But th- this one feels like it's national TV, it's Duke. Like, this is the one that, like, the committee is going to take note of, like, especially if they win it. And, yeah, Kevin, I think Afton Reed is probably a huge key here. He played 15 minutes against Duke the first time these two teams met. He fouled out five fouls in 15 minutes just like and he was good when he was on the floor because i mean duke really doesn't have a true big that can match his physicality but if he is in foul trouble again like it's a huge loss because they don't have like a player like him behind that like duke will go at marsh or keller or anyone else who's in the game at the five if efton's not in the game like yeah full, and- like it will be cars cars playing the five like like flip it, it will be post flip every time dare you to double spray it for shooters right like you got to stay out of those like the thing with like flipping we, we talk about flip a lot is that like when you put him against a guy who's not as good as him he looks like a hall of famer when you put him up against a guy who is a little bit more physical than him then it can it can get it can get hard it can get really hard really quickly for him and 
that's why that's what makes Efton Reed so important in this game because you you need him to stay on the floor and just match up with Filipowski. Maybe not even take him out of. You don't even have to take Filipowski out of the game. You just need to make life hard for him because when you make life hard for him, you make life hard for Duke as long as you're not overcommitting help and leaving the shooters because Filipowski can make those passes. Also, like I, w- I will say, the last time these two teams played, it was probably one of the worst officiated games I've seen this year. Like the the refs just had absolutely no idea what they were calling. I I thought like big picture. I mean, I think I was podcasting that night. Like I thought that Wake Duke game was such a horrific product in general. Like 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 to me, like any. I mean, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, but there's this like one guy who. Yeah, like, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Spent his entire the day on the Virginia Twitter. guy. Yeah, he just just ca- just caping for the a- ACC, and look how great it is, and look how if, if you know on games play, you know, because Big Twelve teams don't play on Tuesday afternoons before sundown. Uh, their non-conference schedules are worse, and that's why they get boosted into the tournament and all this nonsense. And again, I understand. Like, you want to respect the ACC, that's fine. Like, I'm. I don't, I don't mean like I, I like Wake. I like I don't think Pitt's bad, whatever. But like, I don't know how you could have possibly just watched that, like watched Wake Duke, which should be like as high level game as your league has. Right. Wake Duke is top four team on the road against, you know, top two team in the league, uh, two dynamic offenses, NBA level guards, like all of that. It was such an underwhelming product from the officiating to uh, the lack of shot making to the decision making to the execution. It was awful. Like just a just a terrible, terrible, terrible basketball game, and again, I, I just I just don't know how you could have watched that and been like, man, this league deserves everything. It deserves the world. I can't believe we're getting you know we're getting we're, we're getting shafted by you know the man and Joe Lenardi and and everybody else because you know, they don't believe in us. And you know, by the way, NC State should be a tournament team despite losing to Syracuse. Like again, it's just it's just so Twice. so nonsensical. Um, I Sam and I have a working Sam and I have a working theory that these like ACC bubble people like don't actually watch the ACC basketball. No, no chance. Because like I watch Syracuse, I watch a, and then I watch like some of the other ACC games because sometimes they have like standalone windows, and like I, I just it's the same conclusion I came to with ACC football. It's just like this is all you got. Like these are your team. Like this. It's like just a pile of mediocrity. We talked about this basically every show. Like just the coaches after, like I mean, Tony Bennett's great, Steve Forbes is great, um, Shire and Hubert Davis are pretty good. Basically, outside of that, like most of the coaches in this league are either like just getting started or just straight up not very good. Like I'm not the biggest Mike Young guy. I'm, I'm not the I'm not the biggest Brownell guy. I'm not the biggest Capel guy. I think I'm not not a big Kevin Keats guy either. I just look up and down this conference and I just see mediocre coaches. Look, I think the best way I would describe it, and then we can probably move off our ACC diatribe of like, I guess it's your show. We can do what we want. But no, we're, we're definitely moving on soon. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the, the, the way I would frame it is there's a lot of coaches in the ACC who are, to have been too good to get fired and not good enough to like really elevate their place. Right. Like, I had someone float like a Kevin Keats hot seat thing to me the other day. I'm like, yeah, like it feels weird to fire him. Made the tournament last year, didn't suck. Like, it's kind of bizarre. Like, okay, but like you look, at, you kind of take 
take a like a big picture, zoom out, you're like, yeah, like, I guess this guy elevating NC State, man, probably not. Is, is Brad Brownell elevating Clemson? I guess you could maybe argue he has a little bit, but like, you know, again, they've they've not like, again Mike Young. Like I, I like Mike Young a lot. He's fine, right? Like there's just a lot of fine, and that's just the worst place to be, especially in this day and age. Like you, you, you I, I'd rather be going down swinging. I mean, I, I kind of said it with Oates, right? Like I would much rather be the place that goes down swinging, trying to be top three than accepts being an eighth every year. Like I'd rather come in 13th and one, one, come in 13th, trying to come in third than eighth coming, trying to come in seventh. Like, yeah. Like whatever. a couple of years ago, I, I kind of thought like that way about a lot of the big 10 coaches. They were just like, meh, but like, then I started watching a lot more of the ACC coaches, and I'm like, no, the ACC is what I thought the Big Ten was. Because, <laughs> um, like, because the Big Ten coach discourse is just so flooded with, like, people that are so upset with their coaches. Meanwhile, in the ACC, like, everybody just seems content to be mediocre. And they say, oh, uh, we should all get in the tournament because we beat, I don't know, we beat the Big 12 nine times. Their their lo- their logic is oh the Mountain West teams all beat each other so when we do that too we should also get in the tournament well even though like five of the six Mountain West teams like that are maybe tournament caliber like aren't close to the bubble like all five of those teams are single digit seeds and that moves us right to our next topic right into the Mountain West and also also real quick before you move on Louisville can't miss this hire. Like no. the league is so league is so bad that like if they get the higher right, like they could be in business in the next year or two. Absolutely, yeah, and they, they have the money to to do that in terms of making the hire and getting the players with NIL because you know that if they if they throw the money behind the hire, they will the the boosters are going to start to are, are going to start to matriculate their way back into that program financially, and you'll be in a much better spot. Um, and then back to the Mountain West. Just there's six, there's six really good teams in this conference. And look, Colorado State's right now like seventh in the league, and they're like a seven seed in most brackets. And like Utah State has the inside track to winning the league title. If you look at their schedule, it's three games against the um, against Fresno Air Force, San Jose, and then home against New Mexico. So. They have the inside track to winning the title, but like, I don't think any people really think Utah State is truly the best team in this league. Like, how would you rank the top six in the Mountain West? I mean, I think the standings have been driven by um, they've been driven by the unbalanced schedule. So if you look, Utah State only played UNLV once. UNLV is like the scariest team in the league in terms of. They beat everybody, you know, when they're playing up to their level, and they're also like struggle. top twenty-five in in Torvik over last month. I think that doesn't surprise me. Uh, like they, I think their other team that they avoided a second time was Nevada. Yeah, they play UNLV once and Nevada once. So, look, they're the, the league title is going to probably wind up separated by two games. I would have to imagine. Um, th- that's the difference right now between first and seventh. The difference there is literally just Utah State avoiding two good teams, and like I think Colorado State avoided two bad teams, right? Like that's 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 how I, I think that's why it's important to like look deeper on those types of things. Like 
Tyler State's play the hardest strength schedule in the league. I think the ranking best versus – I guess I'll, the way I'll do it is I'll, I'll rank the teams I think are best – have the best chance of advancing in the NCAA tournament because I think best is kind of – it's just like an impossible like target to hit. Um, I think San Diego State's probably the safest bet to win a game, one, because of seeding, and two, because they're experienced and tough and physical. Um, and Ladie is you know, a, a, an unstoppable force. I would say number two on that list would be New Mexico because they're the most talented team in the league. They're fast. Um, they can really shoot. They have the size. Uh, three would be Colorado State to me because they have the point guard. They have the coach. Um, they're balanced. They can beat you in different ways. They've beaten high-level teams already this season. Uh, number four to me would be probably Utah State because of Osibor and the ability to switch. Um, number five would be Boise because Leon is Leon. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I just think they're due at some point. Like they've had such, you know, terrible luck in the tournament, been close in a lot of games, haven't been able to finish. Um, so I, I guess I would be I, – I, I, I'm hoping that Boise finds a way to break through. And then Nevada, I think Nevada's fine. I just – I don't necessarily see it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. Like I love Davidson. I think you know, obviously Blackshear's ability in late games is phenomenal. I think he's kind of like – Kind of a strange analogy here because they're very different, like stylistically. But him and Boo Booey to me are like the two best closers in college basketball. Like they just control tempo, they get the shots that they want, um, they can run the clock down, get to the lane, get fouled. Um, that's a hugely valuable thing. But you gotta have JT Pegues in there. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But uh, yeah, look, I, I think Nevada's good. But I, I think all six have the opportunity to maybe win a game. Um, but I think if you were you're making me rank. I would probably take San Diego State, New Mexico, and Colorado State over the rest. I would. I actually think I would take Utah State over Colorado State. I've liked this team since the offseason, and I still really like this team. Um, I think you, you mentioned with Colorado State, they have the coach, they have the point guard. I mean, obviously, Darius Brown's not as good as Isaiah Stevens, but Utah State also has the coach and the point guard. Darius Brown's pretty good, too. Um, Danny Sprinkle, I think he's probably a better coach than, than Nico Medved. Pretty close, though. They're both really good. And then obviously you have Osibor, and I just think they that Utah State does a lot of really good things. Um, they don't they don't shoot really well, but they can really get to the basket in a lot of different ways. They have a lot of a lot of guards with ability to get to the basket. And I, I've talked about this team a lot because I really like them. I think I know that they just lost to Colorado State, but I, I think that I like them a little bit more than I like Colorado State. I would say. Yeah, Utah State over Colorado State is probably the only change I would make. But like, like Kevin said, Isaiah Stevens is a different maker. Like he could he could go win you a tournament game. Yeah, um, absolutely. Isaiah Stevens is legit. He's he's awesome. He's been one of the best guards in the country the last couple of years now. So I wouldn't put it past him to do something crazy. Are there any tournament sites at altitude this year? It's always Ooh. something. Interesting um, looking out West like teams. I don't um, think uh, Salt Lake City. Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. Is yeah, Salt Lake. Yeah. Okay. Because like and, last year, I re- last year I remember it being a talking point that like, what if a Mountain West team goes and plays in Denver? Which I don't. Spokane think is altitude, right? Huh? Spokane's altitude, right? Or at least a little bit. I don't think it would be as much. Yeah, probably I don't like, think it's probably like enough to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, like, it. I think Mountain West team would be happy to be in Spokane just from, like, a ease of travel yeah, standpoint. Like, no no jet lag, whatever. I mean, especially time game. I mean, I, I remember 
hanging out, you know, two years ago, Colorado State was an indie. Um, I know just, those guys pretty well. And like, they played the first game of the tournament against Michigan Thursday afternoon and like didn't get in until Tuesday afternoon, you know, Tuesday late because of the, the plane situation. And then, you know, had to, pr- it, it was a tough turnaround adjustment for them. Uh, certainly it would be even harder if you're talking about like a San Diego state or something like that coming all the way from the West coast. So uh, I think, you know, obviously they'd love to stay out West, but Salt Lake's probably the only altitude site I would consider at least. Colorado State yeah. didn't get a super great draw in that tournament either. Oh, horrific. And then, I mean, and then they're like rolling in that game. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoop, like that, that was, I mean, this is, it sounds hilarious to say this, like that the, the, the game was decided by Frankie Collins. Frankie Collins won Michigan in tournament game, but it was 29-14 Colorado State. It was right there, they're rolling, and then Frankie Collins like late clock gets an and one kind of out of nowhere, just like driving it, putting his head down, and then steals the inbound, gets a layup, and all of a sudden it's 29-19. That's like, right, Frankie like, Collins thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he still does that like once a game. Now it doesn't matter because I mean <laughs> it's Arizona State. Speaking of Arizona State, though, they have um, an interesting matchup tomorrow night against Washington State, which is a team that we didn't talk about at all until, like, I kind of shoehorned them into a show just, like, because we hadn't talked about them, like, two weeks ago or something. And now here they are. They're 12-4, and four, first place in the Pac-12. And, like, it, we we can go on and on about Kyle Smith. He wins it. He's the best coach in Columbia since the 50s, San Francisco since the 80s, Washington State, like, it's a Hall of Famers that have made the tournament there, and he's going to do it. But, like, this team especially is just, like, a band of, like, kind of misfit toys, really. Um, they lose their four top scorers who all could have come back, and they bring in um, – I mean, Miles Rice obviously was redshirting, but, like, nobody expected him to be this good. And Isaac Jones from right across the, the border in Idaho, I, I, I definitely didn't think he would be this good in the Pac-12. I thought I thought he was pretty good. I, I just didn't think he would be this good. Jalen Wells, another guy, I'm not sure I thought he would be this good, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone in the offseason that was higher on Jalen Wells. I mean, maybe Kyle Smith was the only one. Um, and, I mean, Oscar Clough as well, just another impact performer for them. They, they have a – I mean, the guy who Jonathan and I both thought would be their best player um, has played in six games and hasn't played since November 27th. It's wild. Look, I mean, Kyle Smith's an elite evaluator, right? Like, I think a lot of times things get um, – I, I think because people are bad at assessing, like, who's a great coach, then any team that doesn't have, like, elite pedigree that wins, we tend to ascribe to um, X and O coaching. This is not to say that Kyle Smith's a bad X and O's coach. But Kyle Smith wins because when you watch his team – you do not understand how they look this talented, right? Like they didn't look like they were in a huge talent deficit against Arizona. They weren't out athleted. They weren't like, again, and it wasn't like some crazy sets that they're running, right? Like they're posting up and being more physical and they're drawing fouls and Wells is making threes and Rice is playing the ball screens, right? Like they are elite at doing that. Right. I mean, and I remember talking to Kyle Smith a couple of years ago for a story I was doing and like, he told me about Miles Rice and Miles Rice was a true freshman. They're like, we love this kid. We think he's been amazing. Like he reminds us of Bouye and Bouye we had to take because we, I, I loved him. I loved him. I loved him. And, you know, it was literally, if we didn't take him, he was committing to Fresno Pacific and his mom called and was like, 
um, he's about to commit, and we're like, fine, I guess we'll offer him, we'll give it a shot. Fresno Pacific is a Division II school, right? And the reason Kyle Smith made that call for Jamari Bouye was because at Columbia, he had a similar kid. He had, he had a kid he had a feeling about that he just couldn't shake and loved him. The recruitment wasn't there. He didn't trust his gut. And that kid went to a Division three school. His name was Duncan Robinson. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, this is who Kyle Smith is. Like, he will always find dudes. Like, and and sometimes there are guys that pop on analytical models. Like, I remember Isaac Jones being like box plus minus god at Idaho, and like you'd look at T rank and you'd be like a best available portal guys, and like he'd always be there. And you're like, yeah, like I wonder what his deal is. And like, of course he's a Washington State kid, right? Like, same thing. Like Jalen was like, oh yeah, like he's like one of the more intriguing stat profiled, you know, Division two guys. Again, like. Wonder where he is. Oh, Washington State, of course, right? Like that's that's how they made their living international, like whatever it takes. And so uh, he's done a phenomenal job. Give him a lot of credit. Uh that was fun game to watch last night. Obviously, Wells was phenomenal. Um, I think probably scary that they won that game with how poorly Miles Rice played. Like, like there's a world where you know they, they look a lot better than they did last night when Miles Rice plays as well. So um they're a good team. I think they'll probably be overrated now by the the rankings because people will try to be them like a 10 spot jump, and all of a sudden they'll be like 14th in the AP poll and like again they're not the 14th best team in the country but they're a dangerous team because they have size they can switch um you know that lineup they put out last night with Winsu at the at the one replacing Rice all of a sudden they're switching one to five and doing all that like that's scary um so the right matchups certainly could could make a run and even if not I mean incredible story for for them to be be where they are right now like I I still kind of think Sam I told you this last night I still kind of think they're under they're going to be underrated by like casual college basketball fans because like 75% of the country didn't stay up to watch that game last night. Like I probably wouldn't have if it wasn't for the media cup that was at that was at like 10:30 that I didn't get back from until midnight. Got it. Congrats on the win by the way. Yes, big win for the DO. Big win for the DO. Um yeah, but about Washington State like I hope they're not peaking too early cuz I mean I love this team and I, I think back to um, early in the season when they lost to Santa Clara without Christoph Tilly. And I really loved Santa Clara early in the season. I still think they're super talented. And they're well, and I think that Herb Sendex is a great coach as well. But I, I think about that game and I say it kind of the same thing that you said about Washington Arizona. Like, I don't I didn't think that Santa Clara's talent gap versus Washington State was all that was like all that crazy because. I mean, Santa Clara is just really talented. I think it's more of a Santa Clara thing than a Washington State thing at this point. I kind of needed to shoehorn Santa Clara because it's been a while. But, um, yeah, I just think back to that game, and I didn't – like, Washington State dropped 19 spots in Ken Palm from that game. I don't think I thought less of them after that game. I kind of had to – I kind of had to in terms of, like, a um, like a – I couldn't rank them, and I was maybe – I, I was thinking about like maybe putting them like in a in a top in a, in like a top 30 40 range going into that and and then they lost like I couldn't I couldn't justify that at that point but I didn't think that much less of them after that game and they obviously lost a couple games in conference play early on and now they're they're just on fire they they're they killed Cal they killed Stanford and they just beat Arizona and I I hope they don't have the letdown game against Arizona State because that feels that feels like it's a possibility and not a, even though they're a much better team 
it just feels like something that makes sense to happen. I guess the good news is that now that they've beaten Arizona, I mean, obviously the Pac-12 title, they want that, but like big picture making the tournament would be, you know, still an incredible accomplishment. And I think they could lose to Arizona State this weekend and not hurt themselves too much there. So the Arizona win gives them some flexibility. And obviously uh, kudos to Kyle Smith making the tournament. Wazoo is pretty special. They're playing great. And, you know, another team that just kind of find ways to win. So we're all in agreement. We're all in agreement that Kyle Smith should probably be in conversations about better jobs than DePaul, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think the only thing I would say in response to that is there is a level of like Kyle Smith is what he is because he's great at bad jobs, right? Like, like, I, like, I, like I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious, and maybe, maybe it will, maybe it's, maybe it's worth risking. Like, I'm genuinely curious, like, what happens if Ohio State hires Kyle Smith, right? Like, and now you can recruit anyone you want. Like, do they still out-evaluate everyone? Like, do they fall into the traps? Like, I think Kyle is kind of, like, convicted enough in who he is that maybe it works. But, like, again, maybe there's there's probably a middle ground between DePaul and Ohio State, right? Like, like I think Stanford would be a good one. And, then, like, Stanford is a prestigious place you can win. I think you can win there. It's obviously a much better place to live than Washington state. I don't mean to be critical of Pullman, but it's just, he's, a, he's also a Bay area guy. He yeah. Yeah. He's been there. Right? Like, it makes a lot of sense, but it's a place where you have to get creative in recruiting because you are so limited in who you can recruit academically. Like to me, that's the fit. Right. And like, I would love that. Like Washington, I'd be okay with. I'm, I'm maybe skeptical, maybe more skeptical than I should about what he would be at Ohio State. I guess this put it this way. I think Kyle Smith can do an unbelievable job of raising your floor. Right? Like he he takes Washington State and like irregard like regardless of the season, he's taken Washington State and made them like a top 75-ish team every year. Like if he does that at the Paul, like that's phenomenal, right? Like that's the best outcome possible. At Ohio State, like I think there's gonna be a lot of years where like, all right, great, like you made the second round congratulations right like what is that right so i think that's to me is probably the the breakdown that i like you know i, I love miss stanford i think that's to me the hire that makes the most sense him or mitch henderson don't think you can go wrong if that opens but interesting to see yeah and um i i, I also think that there's a tailor-made replacement for him at washington state and david riley from eastern washington um because even to the wcc that's still probably a better job than what EWU is. Almost every job is better than Eastern Washington. There's I mean that is the middle of they pay they they also pay nothing. Like David Riley will like probably will take whatever he can take. I mean Shante Leggins took Portland. I think anything in like David Riley would probably take Pacific if Pacific open, right? Like yeah, I mean honestly I, I, I honestly would fear that Riley could get a better job than than Washington State with how many West Coast jobs could potentially open up this year. Feels like a lot of them are kind of on that. Yeah, on that. Like it depends what how we'll define. Like how like is Washington State a better job than like if like obviously Nico Medved would never leave Colorado State for Washington State, but if Colorado State were open, I think Colorado State's going to be Ollie for Oakmanesh. But like again, like if we're working working way down the carousel, right? Like, would you rather have Washington State or Colorado State in the Mountain West? In the Mountain West versus WCC. I, I would take Colorado State. Right. Yeah. I think I agree with that. Right. So you get much better crowds. Um, there's much more interest. It's um, better. People actually want to live in Colorado versus Pullman, Washington. 
yeah, like it'll be interesting. Washington State, Boise for him potentially if Leon got Washington. There'll be jobs for David Riley if he wants them. Yeah. And there's 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 a lot of jobs that I think could open up in that um, in on the West Coast. I think Washington could. I think Stanford absolutely probably will. There's a chance both LA Pac-12 schools open, just given um, the situations that have unfolded at uh, USC, and then Cronin's obviously in rumors for a lot of jobs. There's a chance that you see. Um, I mean, Oregon State, I don't know if they're going to be willing to pay the buyout going down to the West Coast Conference, but probably should probably should open at some point very soon. Um, but, yeah, it, it could be a really interesting year. I mean, Arizona State could open because Hurley's been in conversations elsewhere um, or rumors elsewhere. There, there's, there's a lot of potential openings out there. And I'm the carousel is going to be so fascinating as it always is. But um, going back to Maricopa County, um, Grand Canyon um, fell. Now their at-large chances are probably zero, even though that's not a terrible loss to take at Tarleton. And Seattle is also not a bad loss to take. But I don't think that they're going to be able to get an at-large after this. I think I'm maybe a little more optimistic. Um, I think honestly, it will, but what, what I think is interesting is I think there's room in the first four for one of GCU, James Madison, and maybe Princeton, right? I think any of those teams, if they would enter, say, would you say like if Indiana State doesn't win the conference tournament, are they in that group as well? Potentially. I mean, look, the, the reason I use those three as an example is I think there is a level of like, people really overestimate how smart the committee is like at the end of the day, the committee says, Oh man, like we should just give this team that had four losses all season a shot, right? Like Indiana state has a few more losses. So maybe it gets a little more complicated and resume wise, like, like if Indiana state is in the normal, like if any of those teams are listed in the normal pool of, you know, at larges, they're going to look, you know, bleak, right? Like grand Canyon is a hard to justify when you compare to like, I don't know, Ole Miss or Butler or whatever, right? Like it's, it's hard to sell, but I think if if two of those three, may, I, I think they're hurt if they're all in the same pool because how do you put all of them in? You'll just leave all of them out. But if two of them got auto bids, and then all of a sudden like GCU gets tripped up on you know, the night before, and like you know, especially depending on how the bubble shapes up, does does it does it strengthen? Does it weaken? Like I could definitely see a world where they're just like ah whatever, like that team won thirty games, they're a tournament team, right? Just like I could see. You know, that team won 30 games. Their tournament team happened with James Madison and with Princeton. So it'll be interesting. Um, Princeton's not going to win 30 games. Correct. They, yeah. And they get that many. I don't, they even they're, not allowed. they're not allowed. Yeah, they, they can't. It's stupid. But same idea, right? They'll be 14 20, game league schedule. They'll be 28 and 3 or, you know, 20, 26 and 3, you know, 22 and 3 once you take out other non division 1. Cornell could be like 24 and 5. Yeah. Again, I, I think I think five isn't like it's the pie threshold. Yeah. Um, again, it, it just it's tricky in practice because again, you need the right situation. But I think Actually, there's a world, five, five, right? They lost in the final. There's a world where you could get to like, you know, all right. Like, do we really want Villanova with 15 losses or Grand Canyon with four? And I think maybe in that world, Grand Canyon gets in the tournament. Yeah, and like I, I feel like at that point, you've also seen like. Villanova has had their chances to like make 
the claim that they are definitely a tournament team and like they haven't well grand canyon maybe hasn't had the chances to do that and and there's maybe that i, I mean grand canyon is a super talented team for that league i mean obviously villanova is ridiculously talented so maybe not the best comparison but like grand canyon is has, has high major talent out there like it, it's it's crazy what 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 they've got i mean ty and grant foster ray harrison McLaughlin, i mean this it's just a stacked stacked team good coach and more money than everyone else is a pretty good recipe yeah yeah <laughs> i mean looking back at it bryce drew taking vanderbilt to the to the ncaa tournament i mean i know that um I know that it was his first year and then it got a lot worse right after that, but Hey, took Vanderbilt to the NCAA tournament. I mean, Jerry Stackhouse got SEC coach of the year for 81st in Ken Palm. Hey, Dennis Gates might go winless in the SEC in year two with a $25 million buyout. What a world. Yeah. We've talked way too much about Dennis Gates. On this yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've talked way too much about like a lot of different things on this podcast at this point. We, we get a bunch of random topics every so often. We, we've kind of gotten to the point in the season where a lot of the topics are the same as they've been for the last month or so. Um, it's the same coaches that you're praising. It's the same coaches that you're criticizing. Because yeah. like, at this point, the narratives have formed and you're not really reacting as much as you're kind of like trying to predict. Because like in January, you're still kind of reacting to what's going on. In February you're starting to look at bracketology. You're starting to look at the bubble and say, all right, what's going on here? And that's kind of where we've been. It's a lot harder to do podcasts and just kind of come up with new material really at that point. But I do want to get into um, two big games on Sunday in the American conference. What we thought was going to be a potential game of the year between FAU and Memphis is maybe not quite that, but it's still going to be a fun one. Um, And, then SMU and USF, which, I mean, those are two really good basketball teams as well. Yeah, I mean, it should be fun. It's kind of wild how this league is shaped up. Um, still an FAU believer. Know that to defend better. I think, you know, I tweeted about earlier, like, the expectations and like, what they've been – what's been heaped upon them has been ridiculous. Um, you know, South Florida just kind of finds ways to win, so give them credit. Um, you know, certainly wasn't the prettiest performance against UTSA. Um, but there's a reason they haven't lost since the first week in January. So, um, yeah, obviously Amir has been, been phenomenal and, uh, we'll see, you know, SMU, a team that you know, certainly has a ton of talent has looked good on its best days. has just not always been consistent. Um, hasn't let, hasn't played up to competition at times. Like just need to be better in some of those situations. And so it's a good opportunity for a breakthrough for them. Uh, also I believe would keep them in the mix at least for the American regular season title, uh, so that'd be that, that's worth watching, and then obviously Memphis is Memphis. Like it's all been said, they're not very good. By maybe many themselves at times. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe them blowing out Charlotte will turn the tide. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'm just interested to see if they come out with the same energy that they had for the Houston games. Because like this is probably this is the closest thing they're for, gonna for the moment. Like the the narrative swings that way. Yeah. yeah, I think the only difference is that those those I think those Memphis teams were kind of more bubbly, whereas this group, like, I mean, maybe they think they can play themselves back in, but like they probably can't realistically. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, 
And back, circling back to like what Amir's done at USF, I've, I said this last week, but it's worth repeating. I voted him for uh, Coach of the Year and for the, my USBWA ballot last year, and I'm strongly considering doing it again. Like this is like if you win, like he's right there in that conversation with like Dan Hurley's obviously right there, Kyle Smith is right there, Danny Sprinkle, um, Son, Sonny Wicks at Green Bay is in the conversation as well. Just like worst to first is insane um but like the fact of the matter is if i'm thinking about guy at two different spots potentially being coach of the year back-to-back years like what's stopping me from putting amir Abdurrahim in like my top 10 coaches this offseason if if they if this is like they continue to keep showing up and they don't kind of like they, they don't kind of really kind of taper off like what's stopping me from I mean, I think what what probably could stop you is like three straight twenty loss seasons at Kennesaw, right? Like it's still. I mean, look, like I, I, I'm a I'm a buyer, right? I like I like Amir. I think he's obviously grown up a lot. I think it's important for people to understand that, like, you know, coaches aren't finished products the moment they step on campus. The first for their first job, like he's he's going to keep getting better. Uh, he has he's done a phenomenal job with this group, but. I'm probably going to uh, I'm probably going to be at least more judicious on the like I mean Abdul Rahim is God's gift to college basketball for a little long, longer maybe he, maybe at some point he'll prove me wrong in that regard or or maybe I don't even prove me wrong just like prove actually prove it I just like I, I want to see one like all right like he pulled off one really like really amazing like look I mean you, you, Nico Medved pulled off three remarkable rebuilds of Colorado State Drake. Furman, like three monster monster rebuilds, right? Like Amir's approaching two, um, like getting that third group. And I think I had the stat, like there's like eight coaches ever who've pulled off hundred spot Ken Palm jumps at three different schools in four year or three different schools over their first four years. And it's like Chris Beard, Rick Pitino, um, it's like Chris Beard, Rick Pitino, Tommy Amaker, Fran McCaffrey. Like there's very few names on that list. So if Amir joins that company, maybe I'll be uh maybe I'll be more inclined. Not to say yeah, it's not and, good. and like it, it definitely would be ambitious to rank him like that high, but like the last two seasons, the coaching jobs that he's done have just been absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there probably aren't five, ten guys that have done that have been more impressive over the last two seasons. But yeah, I mean, it would be it would be a little bit difficult to say. He's straight up top ten because of how many great coaches there are. Yeah, one of the be- one of the ten best coaches in college basketball probably didn't lose to Maine, lose to Maine in yeah. November. I mean, like there, there's there's a lot of really good coaches in college basketball. Like Amir Abdur Rahim probably fits in my top 20, 25. But like again, the, the top ten, like I'm, somebody's gonna have to stop me from putting him in the top twenty twenty five. The top ten, if like this just keeps going and they don't lose until like the sweet 16 or something like that, <laughs> then someone's going to have to stop me from putting him at the top. I won't stop you. Roll on. Yeah. What, what's and, the, uh, what's the logic in terms of coach of the year? And I agree that Dan Hurley should obviously be a candidate, but what's the logic behind including Dan Hurley in coach of the year conversations and not Matt Painter and Kelvin Sampson? I mean, her, uh, Painter didn't lose three NBA players. Yeah. It's the, it's the, I think it's the new roster thing. Um, I think, I think the entire concept of coach of the year is kind of stupid in most regards, right? Like That's why I don't pick it. Like a lot of people do preseason coach of the year picks. I'm like, what the hell is that? It's right. just who you're, it's just who you're picking to overachieve. Right. Yes. So yeah, look, I, I, I think Dan, I think Danny, because he had to replace so much becomes a more 
reasonable one, right? Like, I think Nate Oates is in that conversation, same regard, because he had to replace so much. Um, but yeah, like, best coaching job. Again, I kind of said it with Kyle Smith, right? Like, people don't, people have a, people do a really bad job of like dissecting what, like, actually makes someone a great coach. Um, and so because of that, they, they, they ascribe certain things to, like, for, for, for the wrong reasons. So. Yeah, no I mean, like I also Sam, I Sam Michael, I've got a guy who is committed to Wisconsin to go to Green Bay, and yeah, they're 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 good a lot of a lot of it because of that, but for other reasons as well. So like, yeah, there there's that that has to do with it. But again, I mean, he took a team worse the first. He's going to be in the conversation. I mean, uh, the talent that Alan Huss has at High Point is ridiculous for that league. But again, like he brought that talent in. I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of coaches who have done really good jobs here. I think I looked last week and I was like, all right, what um, first year coaches are in, um, are, are in like this whole possession of first place. And like, obviously Tom Pacor is on this list, but like, I, <laughs> and that's, that, that's just, I don't think of Tom Pacor the same way. I think of the other guys. Cause I mean, those guys are first time D one head coaches for as long as 20 years. This is a tangent that really needs to finish. <laughs> Sam, I've also to, I've also told you this that like I don't understand the Hubert Davis and like National Coach of the Year conversations. Yeah. If he yeah. wins the ACC, sure, give him ACC Coach of the Year. But like National Coach of the Year conversations, I'm not like in the business of like giving guys awards for creating their own adversity. Yeah, I, I saw I saw somebody the other day post like a picture, like a, a collage of like the top 25 teams and like what the coach what the coach's record was their first year. And like said, oh look, Autry might win twenty games in his first season. Matt Painter won nine. Like, oh my god! Like, come on, man. Come on. Do you watch? Do there? Do a again? Do ACC fans watch ACC basketball? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, kind of rapid fire as as we finish here. Just some of the big games this weekend that we didn't touch on: Houston and Baylor at Foster Pavilion. It's gonna be rocking. Camera's gonna be on the moon. Um, should be really fun. Yeah, it's like watching all twenty-two. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about it. Like, I think the I don't know if Baylor has enough dogs to win that game. I'd be presently surprised if they did. Um, Houston wants to win the Big Twelve title. This type of games you got to win. Yeah, um, Jonathan, any thoughts on that game? Or yeah, I think Houston's gonna win it. I think I don't think Baylor's very good. So yeah. Um, Texas and Kansas. This I said to Jonathan before the show. I will be there. This feels like the Kansas wins 67-63 with some Allen Fieldhouse refs moment. And and that's not because I think Texas is really good or it, I, it's just I, that, I hope it's I hope it's that close. It, it's just that like I, I don't I, I feel like this game doesn't end in one of those just Allen Fieldhouse blowouts. Texas has been good on the road and bad at home. So, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't be shocked if that's what, how it plays out. Um, still very unconvinced by the Longhorns, but. Yeah, maybe Ace, maybe they come in there and Ace Miss hits, like, the tough shots you need, need to hit to stay in the game there. It's just, Kansas, like, Kansas is such an interesting discussion. They have been all year. And another team we've discussed to death on this show. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Utah and Colorado, 
another kind of big one for both those teams on the wrong side of the bubble right now. But like, I think if you lose this game, it's not maybe not an elimination game, but it's like a double elimination game. I think for Colorado, it's an elimination game. For Utah, it's again, it's not it's not over, but like you got to win some 50-50s, right? They've lost too many of them lately. I I don't. I, I hope both of those teams miss. Yeah, I was just say, say I hope neither of these those teams make the tournament. I, I don't I think either of them are good, especially Utah. <laughs> yeah, Utah is. I, I don't enjoy watching Utah. I don't enjoy watching Colorado. Yeah, at, least, at least Colorado. I'm glad, that game, I'm glad that game's on the Pac-12 network. At least Colorado has like a really good point guard and like an NBA lottery pick. Like Utah is like below 100 in Torvik over the last month. Yeah, Iowa like they do they work themselves out of the bubble with a win at Illinois? Is that something that they could, like, I, I'm not saying do they win that game. I'm saying are they on that bubble if they do? I'd say probably. I mean, it would be back-to-back. Like at least at least in the conversation. On the road, like, they, I mean, they, I mean, the loss, the home loss in Michigan is really bad. Um, but, like, they would have three straight quad one wins. Like, just going down the stretch run of the season, it's an, it's an established program of the brand. And, like, I think people would start to put them right in that bubble. I mean, winning that game would also probably put them – they're 10-point Ken Palm dogs. They won. They'd probably be, like, 45th in Ken Palm. And that's – you can you can make the case for that at that point. They'd be in the convo, yeah. Yeah. Um, South Carolina and Ole Miss, um, kind of a gut check, I feel, for South Carolina because they've now lost two in a row. And – now you got to go on the road, tough environment. Um, Ole Miss playing for their lives because they're they really struggled. Um, this, yeah, this, it felt, this, like, it this felt like after uh, it felt like after Ole Miss lost to Kentucky earlier this week that like Twitter just like went like took took a storm and it's like oh yeah like Ole Miss's resume is actually terrible. And yeah, like I, I think this Ole Miss South Carolina game is going to be two desperate teams that really badly need a win. At this point, obviously, South Carolina needs a win for a different reason, but this is going to be like a really hard playing basketball game. It's going to be fun to watch because these dudes are going to be flying all over the place looking for, like, diving for loose balls and all that. Yeah, I, w- I would not have used fun to watch to describe it because I think it's, I don't think both either team is very good, um, but it will be very competitive, certainly. Yeah, that, that everybody needs it. Everybody needs it. And, uh, certainly, again, Kind of said it all throughout the show, but like, if you're Ole Miss, like, types of games you have to win if you're a tournament team, right? It, it's hard, huge, but that's the path. Huge game in the Big West: UC Irvine and UC San Diego. Obviously, San Diego can't make the NCAA tournament because of um, the transition rule. It's year four, and they just beat a good, they just beat a red hot Riverside team by twelve on the road that we opened the show with, I think, last week. <laughs> Because they won four in a row or whatever it was, but yeah, that that should be a really fun one. I I like I like watching I I, I like watching both those teams, but I haven't watched enough of them. Um, Big West has some really good coaches. In that. A lot of fun. I'll take Irvine as I do with pretty much all things Big West until proven wrong. Yeah, um, UConn and Villanova. It's the college game day. It's going to be just a crazy environment because Campbell and game day and and UConn is just going to UConn's going to come out and play just, I, I think they're going to come out just, it's going to be like 15 points in the 15 point game 
at like BU8 the first half. They're just going to come out with so much energy because they came out with less than ideal results. I think the energy overall against Creighton was good, but the results were dreadful. I mean, they dropped 10 spots in Ken Palm defense in one game. If you're if you're Villanova, that was the last thing you wanted to see. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Um, Oklahoma against the most uninteresting team in college basketball. I will not be watching this game on ESPN 2 at 4 o'clock. <laughs> Mike Boynton boycott continues. Yes, the Mike Boynton boycott continues. Um, can Oklahoma State pick up another one of these wins? Because they've now picked up two in a row against tournament against um, tournament hopefuls or slash tournament teams. I think they can. Played Oklahoma really well, you know, two weeks ago when they played. Playing better, playing competitive. You know, they're a young team, as as everyone knows, obviously with Garrison and Daly in particular. So um, I think they're starting to find their stride. This dangerous game for Oklahoma. Got to find a way to win it. I just – I'm still I'm still thinking about, like, what happens if, like, they go on a run to, like, the Big 12 championship game and I can't watch it because I'm still boycotting. <laughs> Um, if Oklahoma State goes on a run to the Big 12 championship game, I think we're going to have some bigger issues than yeah. Uh, but than or, 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 they, or they just finish the season strong, retain him, and they're really good next year, and I can't watch. Um, moving to some other stuff tomorrow, George Mason follow-up game gets a really darn good Loyola team who we talked about a little earlier. I mean, it's going to be really fun. Sold out crowd at Gentile and Rogers Park. Should be a lot of fun. Obviously, two good young coaches, two very athletic teams. First meeting was a dandy. So, uh, again, Loyola's won a lot of these kind of 50-50 games to keep themselves in the conversation for the Atlantic 10 title. Uh, Got to keep doing it, and uh, it's be a good one on Saturday to get. Charleston Towson is a really big one in the CAA. Feels like Charleston is really hitting a groove. I've been really impressed with them recently they killed delaware at delaware that's a good delaware team too and i, I know they're taking some tough losses but i mean that's a good delaware team and i mean pat kelsey the the guy is the guy can really coach he's super enthusiastic super fun and his teams really play hard and they they run they, they run the floor and they're obviously this team's not as good as last year but i mean this is a good basketball team rounding into form at the right time yeah, they've been really solid, uh, finding a way. Obviously, Towson's very physical, very tough. Kind of know what you're getting when you deal with a Pat, Pat Scary type team. But you know, as long as Charleston makes shots, I think they should be fine. I mean, it's I just don't know if Towson has enough buckets in them to win it. Um, just last couple, last couple that I want to go over. Um, obviously, tomorrow's a big day in the NEC. I don't really want to get into that because. Nobody cares about the NEC aside from me because I'm going to the Slamoyne FDU game. But that should be an interesting one because it's the winner gets the inside track to the four seed, which means you host um, a playoff game. It could we could just we could very well see these two teams play again in two weeks on March 6th um, in the NEC quarterfinals. I'd be I'm hoping that game's at Lemoyne because I want to add another game to my town and I want to go to champion. I want to go to a NEC tournament game this year. Um, Bryant Vermont is another um, important one. Vermont is again they they've won four in a row since the loss to NJIT, and they beat Bryant by ten at Bryant. I don't think they should have any issues, but they do have to face Bryant and UMass Lowell these next two Saturdays. So, kind of good good tests for them to make sure that they're where they want to be before the AEC tournament, 
with the new conference logo. Terrific. Yeah, it it reminds me of it'll remind me of when I'm driving up I-87 to go to a U Albany game, <laughs> which I haven't done, but I do need to at some point because that new because um, they did just redo that arena. They did, yeah. So, yeah, well, not the Ceph. I feel feel very old as I graduated high school in Ceph Q Arena before it was redone. So, I believe it's called the Broadview Center or something now. Yeah, the Broadview Center. Yeah, I'm, I'm officially washed. <laughs> yeah, and with that, I think Jonathan, you want to take us home. <laughs> Yeah, Sam, I would love to. If you came to hear about Tyler Self's job and where he's currently working, you came to the right place. If you came to hear about Sam Fetterman's love for NEC basketball and LeMoyne, you came to the right place. And if you came to hear about Caleb Grill and what's going on in his life, you came to the right place. This is Season 4, Episode 47 of Brackets Bubbles and Fence Dealers. We'll see you next time.